Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those of you who might be taking this journey with us for the first time, we're speaking with artists for whom making music is as natural as breathing. Some of them are the sons and daughters of music stars. Some of them grew up in homes surrounded by family music makers. Some of them began making music when they were so young that they can hardly remember a time when music wasn't in their lives. But all of them are children of song. We'll find out what inspired them, who they might have met in their travels, or stop by their house on the weekends, and ultimately, we'll learn what drove these artists to continue the family legacy and pursue their own musical journeys. I'm Robert K. Orman, and I'm joined by my producer, Brad Newman. Hey, Brad. Hey, Robert. Welcome back to Music City, pal. Oh, I'm loving this city, and I gotta tell you, we've got some fun guests with us today, a father-son team, and I think today's story, what will really come out of this is, is the power of following your dream, following it all the way to the end of the road, and great things can happen. Brad's here to help keep us honest and help me along the journey, and Jamie Pfeffer's here to make it all sound good as our engineer. In what we've been calling our Nashville Sessions, we're coming to you from a Midtown office that is the headquarters for two of the city's finest singer-songwriters, who just so happen to be a father and son. Marcus Humman has been a recording artist for many labels with 10 albums and counting. In addition to being a great singer, he's also the songwriter behind such giant hits as Alabama's The Cheap Seats, Sarah Evans' Born to Fly, The Dixie Chicks' Cowboy Take Me Away and Ready to Run, Winona's Only Love, Tim McGraw's One of These Days, and many more. In 2005, Bless the Broken Road, as sung by Rascal Flatts, earned Marcus Humman a Grammy Award for Best Country Song. His son, Levi Humman, has recently become one of country music's most promising young artists. Levi co-wrote rocker Steven Tyler's single, Red, White, and You, which became a number one hit in Europe. His Guts and Glory single became the theme song for Ram Trucks, which became a tour sponsor. And since then, he's been making waves with his new tune, Don't Waste the Night. Rolling Stone calls him an artist to watch, and I couldn't agree more. Welcome, you guys. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Marcus, you have the most interesting childhood of anybody I know. I mean, Africa, Italy, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia. I mean, how do you think growing up around the world informed your... That's just your approach as a, as a musician. That's your basic country music upbringing. You can imagine <laughs> when I was in radio tours and people say like, "Oh, where'd you grow up?" And be Saudi Arabia. It turned into Virginia pretty quickly. Um, well, I think um, I think there's just a lot of variety growing up. Uh, music was always a big part of our family because my parents were musicians, not professionally, but they both uh, played piano and and they loved music and they and they. You know, they had a lot of variety. There was classical music. There was Broadway music. They were really, really folkies, you know. And then early on in my life, we were living in Africa, East and then West Africa. And so early stuff that I heard was really percussive, and it was um, just very groovy, you know, uh, kind of African folk, what we now call reggae. We used to call it high life when I was a kid. Yeah. So there was a lot of that. And then my sister, you know, I have three sisters. My oldest sister was really hip, and I would never forget, I mean, literally never forget the day when we wanted to hear new music, we had to send away to Sears catalog, you know, because it was, you know, 1972, and we were in Lagos. And I'll never forget, she got Carol King Tapestry, it came in the mail, right? And these three records, it was Harvest, you know, Carol King Tapestry, and Teeth of the Tillman. And I'd... A Cat Stevens, a great Cat record. A Cat Stevens, and I sat down and listened to those records till I just was... 
I was mad for it, mad for it, especially Cat Stevens in a way early you think on. That's that's what lit the spark. Those, those I do, you know, in a way, you know, it's a spark that it's. Uh, I think it's a little like what when we when I talk about watching Levi emerge as a musician, as an artist. Uh, I think one of the things that we have in common is that it was never a straight line. It wasn't a straight line for me, you know. What I found musically was a lot of passion, and then I would kind of move out and be focused on sports and girls and academics or whatever. And But every time that I dropped into music, I was like dropping into a pit. Just It was deep, and it was a heavy thing. And so in the back of my mind, even though I was, I didn't really realize I'd do music till probably my sophomore year in college, um, there was always a place in my mind. Which was the same year for me as well. Which is the same year for <laughs> Levi, yeah, yeah, actually. I, I want to clarify one thing yeah. just for our audience because yeah. I don't think they realize that your father, why, why you were in all these yeah. countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually worked for the State Department. That's right. And I think also the idea of being exposed to all those cultures but he was doing some pretty amazing things, right? I mean, he yeah. was helping economic development in these countries. That's right. That had to also kind of seep in a little bit with the great music, this idea of, you know, doing something good for people. Well, that's a that's a big thing, too. It is true, yeah. He worked for uh, Agency for International Development, for AID, which is the sort of economic development wing of the State Department. And then during the Carter administration, he was actually, he left AID and it was a politically it was a political appointment, and he was the uh, he headed up the joint economic commission between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and then eventually went back to AID and worked on the Hill, and then finally finished his career in Botswana for many years, and then in Geneva at the UN. So it was a great it was a very interesting career, and and I either traveled with him uh, or later on you know would spend summers in Botswana right. and and so forth. But yeah, there was there was the sense of. Um, my parents also, and his grandparents, they, they also really were about um, being appreciative of the culture that we were in, and that was a big part of our lives, too. We were taught that we were representing our country, but in order to do that, we had to be, you know, we had to show a lot of respect and appreciation of the culture that we were in. So, you know, if we're in Saudi Arabia, for example, my mom studied Arabic, you know, which, uh, which just as an example, small-town gal from Michigan, you know, studying Arabic and walking around in a culture where she's not aware to, allowed to wear short sleeves, but she still, she loved it and was really appreciative of that. And so that was a big, yeah, that's a big part of my life. Levi, did you feel the same way about music? You, you took a winding road too. You yeah. were, you were into art and other things, and and was it the same kind of thing that when you did dive into music, you found it so deep that you, you know the way he did it, and at the same age? Yeah, it was, I mean, throughout my entire life, I grew up with, obviously, him having musical instruments around the house and pianos and just it always being there. But I never really fell in love with, like, music as, like, my one form of artistry. Um, I remember growing up, we didn't really, like, watch TV or anything like that. We kind of just roamed around the house and would pick up guitars here and there or pick up a paper and pen and draw superheroes or something. And mm-hmm. it was always creative. There was always a creative spirit throughout the house. Um, but really... It was sophomore year of college, just like my dad, and I went through a breakup and grabbed a guitar and just became my medium for expression, and I felt like that was the most genuine way for me to express myself, and I kind of like, I remember almost sophomore year when I started writing, I started writing super prolifically, like super fast, and I think it was because I had all this inspiration and all these memories of my father and all these, all these lessons and learning 
that like existed in the back of my mind, but weren't really at the forefront of who I was. And it just kind of all came rushing in at once. Suddenly it was there. Yeah. Suddenly it was you there. No, it was there, but it was. Right. And so like, and so like I immediately stepped into like writing songs and I would be writing a verse, chorus, bridge, hook, everything. And I didn't really know what that was. And, but I realized that it was just part of who I was just growing up in that house and hearing lyrics and melodies be created. Right. What were your early songs like, Marcus? They weren't, they weren't country, country. You went uh, to LA first, right? Yeah, but the truth is that was a lark. I mean, I shouldn't have, I, I shouldn't have gone to L.A. first. I, I actually should have, I should have come to Nashville. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't know, and it was, it was a weird thing that somebody I played football with in college knew somebody who knew Paul Anka, who <laughs> heard some music. Story. Yeah, it's a funny story. <laughs> so often it's kind of awful. But it's a great story, too, because, you know, you, you get hit in the mouth, early on and that's Paul Anka invites them to LA and then never shows up and and then never we never meet him we talked to him (laughs) once and you know he'd been sending us anyway it's it's I don't want to diss poor Paul or whatever (laughs) but uh I mean it was yeah we're in Vegas I'm sure (laughs) but I mean you know what what it what I realized early on was that you know it was this tremendous disappointment and then kind of hunkered down with my sister and uh out of college and played the clubs and and you know, in, in Santa Monica. So when you arrived in Nashville, you knew this was the right Yeah, place. I knew right away. I really Even did. Even though you weren't country country. No, I wasn't. And, and in fact, one of the first guys that when the company I signed with, and again, I won't say his name, but it's kind of a funny thing. And he apologized to me like 10 years later. But one of the guys that was at the company I was in, he basically called me into his office after, after about a month and he said, you should leave. He said, you should go. And uh, he, I always love this little story. He said to me, he goes, and he was clearly irritated by me, like really irritated. He goes, you know who you remind me of? He rem- you remind me of Dan Fogelberg. And I was like, well, okay. And he goes, he goes, that's not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. He said, that's pompous son of a son, such and such. And I was like, And by the way, Dan Fogelberg began his career in Nashville, too. Did he? Re- I didn't know that. Yeah, he lived in Prim Springs. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it. Well, it didn't. It didn't work. It didn't happen easily for me. But I, I loved Nashville right away because I could tell immediately that it was a town about. I mean, it was a town about music in a way that I had not experienced in living in. Like I lived in South Central LA and I worked in Wilshire. This is in the mid '80s, right? And you know, was trying to play the clubs, and it was just. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a car. You know, it was all that kind of thing. So I got to Nashville and. Uh, you know, just in, within two streets, you could walk into any door. People like give you a cup of coffee. I mean, that never happened in L.A., nothing like that, right? And then immediately started playing clubs, and it was clear that the song was king. Absolutely. It, that it, first album, actually, they, it didn't have hits for you on it. Yeah, that's but right. But it did have hits for others, did it not? <laughs> it, it did, and uh, it's kind of funny because the first single was, uh, and I began after years and years, all these all these record deals, I signed like four development deals, you know, and I, I I literally, I was, I was playing so many showcases that people would ask me for questions on, you know, who to get for lighting and, you know, like it was just known, well, that's the guy that showcases. He doesn't get deals, but he, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't put records out, but he gets showcases. But I finally got signed to Columbia because actually two of my best buddies in the business, Paul Worley and Scott Simon, briefly were kind of running that company. Mm And Mary Chapin Carpenter, who was also, you know, like a real hybrid, she was reigning female vocalist of the year. So I guess they figured. If she can well, make it, why not if you? She, if she can, yeah. <laughs> anyway, they signed me. And, and then, of course, eventually they left the label. And, and I still yeah. go like to like places and like the radio heads and PDs were like, 
your dad came in here 20 years ago. I'm like, oh, God. We still don't like him. <laughs> well, that was the thing is that, that I began my finally get a record out career on Columbia, right, with a disagreement with the label. Was I had my first single was supposed to be a song called East Jesus USA. And it was really a song about something like a fantasy of what small town America was like. Because I, I just heard about it from my parents. I lived in a world of people talking about it. But I, you know, I had not lived it. But I was, in, anyway, and so they said, we, they did some test marketing. You know, God forbid you don't do test marketing. Soft research, and they found out, you know, people were really offended. There's no way you remember I couldn't remember it. chance. Wait. <laughs> One day I slow down, go back to my hometown. I'm not still there, something like small arms everywhere, East Jesus, USA. <laughs> we hate you. <laughs> I hate me. I hate myself now. <laughs> I'm offended. I remember back in the day that, so I'd be, you'd be on the road or something, and we had uh, All in Good Time yeah. as a CD, and but all my parents' friends had it, uh-huh. or all my friends' parents had the CD, and I'd go over to there, and they would like play your songs. And I remember just being like homesick, and I was only like five miles away from the house, but I'd be so homesick, and you'd be gone on the road. And like I have these like recollections of hearing like "Blessed Broken Road" or uh, "Life Is a Church" and these songs from this record, and being super homesick. <laughs> Who was the yeah. first cut? Was it was it the Michael Martin Murphy thing? You know, there was one before it. Uh, I think Oklahoma something, Oklahoma Skies or something by Randy Van Warmer. Actually, the yeah. first actual kind of major labely ish mm-hmm. type cut was that, and uh, the. F- First single was Pilgrims on the Way, which was Michael Martin. That was Murphy. Michael Martin. I believe Murphy. his last country release before he went straight cowboy. Right. Yeah. That's a good song. Thanks. I like song. Yeah. I and I remember, you know, we got Becca and I got married, and uh, I'll never forget. It was the first time I ever heard a song of. We were in Destin, of course, you know, for our honeymoon, and we're on the beach, and they had those big speakers blaring out on the beach, and they played that song, and I just about fell out. I was just, you know, when you've never heard, it just was amazing. It was an amazing, oh. Let's see, uh, oh my gosh, I, gosh, I could try to remember. It's a piano piece. Uh, it's right, I've heard you do it on piano. Yeah. Let's see. You don't know me, but I know you. We are pilgrims. We are pilgrims on the way. I could love you. You could love me. We are pilgrims. We are pilgrims on the way. Then there was some really weird chord, which is like what's happened with most of my career. <laughs> Any writing session I go in nowadays, it's like, yeah. your dad, the guy with all those chords. This is the old, he's the never a chord he didn't like. And then, Love your dad, but he has a lot of chords. did that first album have one of these days on it? Yeah, it had yeah. one of these days. And uh, it had three things that were single, well, four things were single by other people. So Blessed Broken Road was, of course, a single by a bunch of people. It had, uh, um, it had, it had Jim Collins' first single, too. I'm sorry, uh, I can't remember the title. But uh, then it had Honky Tonk Mona Lisa, yes. which was, was Honky Tonk Mona Lisa. And it was a Doug Stone thing. And then, uh, it was a single for yeah. you, too, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> by then, it was like the long breakup. <laughs> Alice just put one. Just put it still one. makes records, folks. They're just not from Columbia. <laughs> well, they did put it out, and actually, and at that point too, I'd finally asked for a, a video because the first one we did, you know, and actually the first song was like 
it looked like there were some possibilities because why? What was the, the the station in New York? Why and why or whatever? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they that was like our flagship. They were our big believer, and it just happened week two or three of the singles release. They folded. You know, f back in in famously, you know, because they'd been around for like thirty five years and were they were heavily weighted station. That was a really good station to have. Um, and and right at the very beginning of the release of the single, they ceased to exist. And that were, that hurt. That was rough. I, I seem to remember, though, that when you got dumped from the major label world, that that was really, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise, didn't it? I mean, it, it definitely did, actually. Because you stopped holding your songs for yourself. That's right. And started pitching them to others. Yeah. And that, yeah. that really changed your life. It did, a couple things. Well, you know, I should say that uh, prior to that, I actually, the first luck, you know, the first really great fortune I ever had happened before I had a record deal was uh, my first number one um, was actually just before that, and it was Winona Judd's Only Love. Oh, we have to hear that. So, uh, I have to, t but... Um, that's got a funny story to it too, right? I mean, it share, share that a little bit. And then you have to run after it with some kind of cassette or something? Well, let's see if I get this. I don't have a tuner, but do it by ear. Yeah, so it was just a period of time when you know not a lot had happened, and my wife and I we were we were um, at, at the house, and there was a phone machine, the old phone machines, and I was on one end of the shotgun house at the piano, and she was in the kitchen doing something, and. You could hear, uh, you know, the the voice come out and goes, "Hi, this is Winona Judd, and calling from Los Angeles. And don't you think it's strange that I'm in Los Angeles? And who should, what should I be hearing but a song from Nashville?" Anyway, start, and it's going on. I'm like, "Oh my God!" And I go running to the middle. Of the, the middle of the house is where the phone thing was, and Becca comes running the other way. And it's a true story. I mean, we looked at the thing, and and this person, Winona, or whoever was speaking, was went on and on and it was all like you know and god bless you and all these sweet kind of things you think winona would say you know and and i looked at her and i was like pick up the phone <laughs> i was too nervous and scared you know because like what if that is winona and this is my break you know and she was like i'm not picking it up you pick it up <laughs> and you can see your mom doing that too and all of a sudden it's like and god bless click <laughs> and that was like the sound of the end of my career right because that was it like, that was my moment right and uh, so what I did is uh, I went to Universal Records, which I believe was her label. I think it was Universal. And um, I just sat in the, I waited. She was in L.A., so I went that next week. I, I waited. I knew that she would eventually walk in the door. She'd have to walk in the door. And I would just say, I'm the person you called. And, Here it and, is. And she did. She eventually walked in the door. I, you know, I sat there. It's just Nashville, so they give you coffee. They don't kick you out. It's no security, right? And she did walk in. I remember she came in like a big cape. It was killer. And she remembered me, and um, and the, yeah, and she cut that song. And then they couldn't figure the chords out, um, so because I was using an open tuning, and so they they called me to Emerald, the old Emerald Studio, and they said, "Would you like to come in and play?" And so I ended up I'm the you know acoustic guitar player on that, and uh, that was an amazing session. I mean, just the first thing to completely go right, and I was so nervous. I was like, because I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to mess up the guitar, you know, because it would all be my fault if it didn't work out. I have sailed a boat or two out on the wild blue, yonder two dreams rarely come true. And 
And as far as I can see On this island of green I will put my trust in just one thing Only love sails straight from the heart was a struggle did you, when this when Levi started to, sp- to express an interest yeah did you at some part of you want to shield him from how ha- I mean there's a lot of rejection yeah, I, st- ha- I mean I still do and, and yet I feel like he's doing really really well but because of my experiences uh and you know the almost Murphy's Law quality I don't say almost you know it definitely I'll tell you this though uh Robert I he he always had it and, and I don't, you know, it sounds like I'm kind of bragging on my kid, but uh, he would pick up a guitar when he was a little boy, and he would, you know, he'd pick up a bass. At one time, we set up the basement. We had a drum kit, crappy drum, drum set, and a bass, and electric guitar. And, like, he would just play, and he, sometimes he would write a song, but the, and, and those were always, they were always really creative, but the big thing was he could sing. I mean, he could just always naturally sing, and he would make things his own in a way that I know as for me as a singer, like um, I sing all the time now and have for many, many years, and I, I love it, and I love the, the voicing and just the, the, the world of being a singer. But when I was growing up with guitars and piano and learning, I did a lot of singing into my shirt, you know, that kind of like just real quietly, breathy, that thing, which... You know, it's really no good for anybody. And um, I eventually had some people that that told me, you know, taught me to not do that. But Levi would do it as a child. He did would you take advice there, well, so. Levi? Or um, did you ask for advice, I guess would be the I, I didn't really ask for advice so much as I would come to my dad with a song sometimes, and I'd be like, what do you think of this? And that still to this day happens. Every day, like, I'm at the house and I have a guitar on me, I'll be playing something new and asking, like, what do you think of this verse chorus? I'm bringing this to a co-write. And he always gives me his honest opinion, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And it's, I remember back in the day, um, he would really, really champion me being a songwriter. And I didn't really understand what that meant. But we would actually occasionally go into the studio and record just a couple things mm-hmm. here and there when he was doing a session, like over at the old Studio 19 and a few others. Mm-hmm. And I would get in there, and I was way under, like, not ready to do it yet. But I got to kind of experience it, like, hear my voice back to me for the first time and be like, oh, God, I hate this so much. (laughs) Everybody does. Yeah. Yeah. And now, I mean, like, as I've developed and more and more stuff's happened um, and the songs have gotten better, um, I really do feel like I did have a lot of advice that I didn't even really know about growing up. What's an example of a song where you first sort of got it, where you first really felt felt you had something? There was uh, a bunch of songs... um, that really started like, it was like this like building blocks. Um, but really the one song that we wrote together um, kind of really kicked it off for me as an artist. And it was the first time I listened back to a song and I was like, this really defines me as a person and it also defines my family. And my mom's a preacher here in Nashville mm-hmm. and she started a thing called Thistle Farms, which helps women with a history of drug abuse and sex trafficking get off the streets. And it's amazing. It's, their products are at Whole Foods and a bunch of different places. 
Um, but we wrote this song about taking all the wrongs and the pain in the world and turning it into love. And my mom preaches that love is the most powerful force for change in the world. And um, You know what I like about her sermons? Hmm. They're short. Yeah, she's <laughs> short, sweet, and to the point. Yeah. So yeah, uh, me and, actually me and my dad and the late great Andrew Dorff wrote this together. And um, I usually dedicate to this song to Andrew Dorff whenever I play it. So He just died not long ago. Here's Make It Love. Take the tears in the careless words. Take the fears and all the hurt. And let's just make it love. Let's just make it love. Oh, oh, oh. And take the rain that's been falling down. And take this pain that's been hanging around. And let's just make it love. Take each other's hands And let's just make it love While we both still can And let's just make it love Make it love Anyway, something like that. (laughs) So nice. I'm Robert K. Orman, and you're listening to Children of Song, and our guests today are Levi Humman and Marcus Humman, both of whom write songs here in Music City. Marcus, you're kind of famous for going to the artist and collaborating with the artist. Uh, And I'm thinking particularly of the Dixie Chicks, who a lot of the Nashville songwriters go on pilgrimages down there to Texas to to hang, and what's it like to write with them? Uh, It is... It was great. I mean, it's really been quite a while. They were just in town. Finally, of course, they just had the, got back together and did a world tour, and I'm so happy for them, uh, and um, and happy for all of us, you know, who had songs, and, and to have those songs live again is mm-hmm. really great. Um, they were very creative. They were, you know, to me... I, um, Marty I and the, Emily are really good players. They're very good players, and Natalie's as good a singer as I've ever come into contact with. She's as good as, as instinctive a... Uh, and you know she's a passionate. She's just a remarkable singer. But they were there's a special combination in those those women that you know it it's not completely a surprise if you think of it. It's the biggest selling female group in you know in history. Tell me about Cowboy Take Me Away. Yeah, Cowboy Who was came up with it. Well, that's that's another one of those stories that it it's just. I was, you know, the first time I wrote with Marty, we actually wrote what ended up being the first single on Fly. So I wrote with her the first or couple weeks of the first single on the first album was a song that Costas wrote called I Can Make You, or I Can Love You Better Than That, right? Mm -hmm. So then I was leaving Columbia. They were coming in, but we had the same, Scott Simon was their lawyer and Paul Worley. So I had my friends attached, and they were Roots Babies, and that's what I did. It uh, just didn't work for me. And so I got to write with them. That's what I got to write. So we wrote Ready to Run. I, I didn't know. I, I did the demo. I didn't know if anything would happen with that. I never even heard from them about it, right? 
but I got a call to write with them again. And by that time, they'd sold about five million records, right. you know, and the cat sure, was, the cat was right out there. of the bag, right? <laughs> so I remember going and by the next flight. And by, you know, by then, you know, the first time I wrote with her, I met her at a coffee shop. Second time I wrote with her, I had to drive out of town. I had to go through security. They each had like their own cabins and there was a farm there. Levi. I took, was there. Yeah, took Levi. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, the thing that I remember was we wrote, a, we wrote a song and it was not a very good song. And I knew that uh, it was like two o'clock, and that three o'clock Gary Burr was coming. You know, because Gary's one of the greatest writers of that of that era. He's you know? really good. He's really good, and it was really making me mad. You know, because I ruined. Yeah, I blew it. I had, I had this big chance, and so she was she was actually making me spaghettios. She was asking me if I want spaghettios. Really sweet, and she was making them for lunch. And she said, "What I really wanted to do was write this title that you know that we didn't get to, but yeah, you know, would you like to hear it anyway?" And of course, I was very excited. You know, oh, oh my God, you know. She said, "I want to write it for for a wedding." And then I thought, "I'm going to be totally inside in the family. I'm going to be like, you know." And then, <laughs> and she says, "Yeah, so here's the title." And this is a true story too. It sounds apocryphal, but she goes, uh, "I'd like to, yeah, it's Calgon, take me away, Calgon, yeah." Which was right. an ad slogan. Which a famous ad slogan. And I'm old enough, like, I can, you know, that's like a lady with her leg hanging, never out, heard the, that slogan. hanging out the bath. Well, you're too oh. young. <laughs> and bubbles and the bubbles, you know. Yeah. And I was literally trying to come up. I thought maybe it's going to be this cool parody spoofy thing. And I said, well, love comes clean. And, you know, I had this whole, I had all these soap metaphors. And she finally said, no, 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 I'm not Calgon. Cowboy. She's marrying, Charlie's actually a cowboy. He actually has like a ranch. And she's going to marry, um cowboy so i went just thought this would be great for her wedding and uh and also the, the thing about that song is the fastest i think it's the fastest song i ever wrote because i had just a couple of lines just the beginning of the song and she had this melody she had she had the rolling arpeggio thing and we just practically sang it back and forth to one another I want to touch the earth I want to break it in my hands want to grow something wild and unruly I want to sleep on the hard ground in the comfort of your arms on a pillow of blue bonnets blanket made of stars oh it sounds good Cowboy, take me away and fly this girl as high as you can into the wild blue. Send me free, oh, I pray, closer to heaven above and closer to you, closer to you. So great. Levi, am I right? The first cut you ever had was with Aerosmith, Steven Tyler. <laughs> it is. It was like the first time I ever wrote with an artist, too, so that was kind of crazy. <laughs> so how was Steven? Oh, my gosh. So my publisher is a guy named Desmond Child, and he wrote songs like Dude Looks Like a Lady and uh, Living on a Prayer and a bunch of big old songs from Living the 80s. Living the Vita Loca. I mean, he's Living got a, a catalog yeah. as long as your arm. Yes. He is a very prolific, amazing songwriter, and... Um, he and Steven were getting together to write a song for his record, and Steven was doing this country record with Big Machine. Mm-hmm. And um, Desmond and him said they like got together and didn't write a song. And I had the song started called Red, White, and You. And 
Desmond played it for Steven, and Steven jumped up and down in the room, he said, and they called me on the phone, and of course I like missed the call, and it was like all this voicemail, it's like, hey, it's Desmond and Steven, <laughs> we're here chilling, and we want you to come by the studio and work on the song with us. So I like got the voicemail, and I was like worried that they had already left or whatever, and I drove as fast as I could over to Destin, and Steven was still there, and Desmond was there, and we're like, hey, what took you so long? I was like, oh my gosh, and I, I got there, and it was so weird because, so Steven was in that chair, and I like, and I had like only seen pictures of him like throughout my life, like on the internet or whatever. Yeah, big lips and all yeah, and, yeah, and he looked exactly like he looks like in all those pictures. Mm. And um, and I was just kind of like freaking out the whole time, and I was nervous to talk. And like I just Dream On is one of my favorite songs of all time. Mm-hmm. And so I sit there and I'm on the console, and he's wanting to do uh, the work tape and the demo like at the studio. And so I'm sitting there on the console, and he's like singing in the mic, and I'm on the console talking back, and I'm like kind of like guiding him through the song and I was like I'm guiding Steven Tyler through the song and it's like it was just insane and just hearing him kind of talk was um, talk about his life and talk about his stories was like enough to like a lifetime worth of rock starness so Red White and You oh my gosh red see if I can remember it yeah so we wrote this one and um, it was actually made it on a Skittles commercial on the Super Bowl it's kind of this claim to fame and I it was one of the cooler experiences Right now, nothing else matters. It's you and me in the Georgia night. Look around, cause it don't get any better. Have you ever felt so alright? Let's dance and take it slow, yeah. Tom Petty's on the radio, and we're singing about American girls like you. When I look in your eyes, all I wanna do is bang, bang, baby, like the 4th of July. A lightning strike in the midnight sky. Don't give a damn about the summertime blues. All I need is red, white, and you Can't let those colors fade Tell me you're gonna stay American girl making dreams come true All I need is red, white, and you oh, 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 ooh yeah, ooh, oh, oh, oh yeah, oh, 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 oh All I need is red, white, and you, babe <laughs> Add that little in your mind that Steven Tyler shriek. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> I'm like a whole step lower than he is on that. Exactly, giant. Your parents, Levi, are both very socially progressive people and very socially conscious people. Yeah. Do you find that comes naturally to you as well? I mean, do you try to also incorporate your awareness of the good and evil in the world into your work? Yeah, I think. I mean, like for instance, I wrote um, a song called "Guts and Glory." That's exactly where I was going. Yeah. So, yeah, I wrote a song called Guts and Glory. And it's just kind of uh, my, me kind of talking about what America is to me. Um, I wrote it, and Ram Trucks picked it up as their kind of go-to song. And um, we went on this basically cross-country tour on Ram Truck. And in Flint, Michigan, we delivered water to Flint, Michigan. Um, in Austin, Texas, we piled food in the back of a truck and delivered it to the communities there. And we just find it, found new ways to kind of be involved in different communities as we entered them. I wrote it with the awesome Tom Douglas and Travis Hill. I love Tom Douglas. I haven't played it in a minute, so this might be. (laughs) Where 
railroads up, parks on a Montgomery bus With firemen rushing in We're standing alone, falling down and losing till we win We're Armstrong walking on the moon A giant leap of mankind We're fighting with a band of brothers Never leaving one behind Getting up, going to work Blood and sweat and tears Giving all we got Till it hurts and standing all our fears Fears staring down our fears Staring down our fears Stripes and stars It's our story, it's who we are We are guts and glory It's a cool song. Totally messed up, but I cool? like this song. Yeah, no, I, I did too. Liked it. Ram trucks loved did it. You, so I was didn't very you blessed. take him with you when you won your Grammy Award yeah. for Song of the Year? Yeah. I want to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my dad got, I think, nominated for Grammy three times in his career so far, and um, the first two times he took my mom, and they lost. And my mom was sick of losing, and she thought she was bad luck. So the third time, she was like, I'm not going to L.A. again to watch you lose. Staples Center to lose. This was the time when Bless the Broken Road. Yeah, this is Bless the Broken Road. And um, I remember we get to the Grammy and Staples Center, the place. Um, and I'd never been to L.A., and I was, like, way into skateboarding at the time. So I had, like, my Bob Marley shirt, my white tight skater pants, and I was just rocking out, like, so ready to hang out with everybody. And... Um, <laughs> In front of us was the reggae. It's like reggae, country, and then like metal is like right after one after the other in terms of the awards. Right. Because at the Grammys, there's like a pre-Grammys Grammys. Right. right. And so Which is where they give out the country stuff usually. Yeah. So we, um, with my Bob Marley shirt on, uh, watched the reggae people go up first and win and whatever. And Ziggy Marley was up there, and then the country music thing happened. Remember and, who was sitting next to us? And this was I'll, I'll tell that Good part later. Okay. But. So it was like me, my dad, and Jeff Hanna from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And we're sitting there, and my dad the whole time was saying, like, I don't care if I win. I don't care if I win. We're going to lose. Just get ready. And he was sitting there just like when it was his time, and he was just like hands were sweating, like knuckles together, white knuckles. Uh Clench fists. Clench fists. And um, they said, country song of the year, God bless the broken road. And my dad just stands up and says, hell yeah. <laughs> just screams it out loud right in front of everybody. It was I don't awesome. Think I said hell. Yes, you did. You did. It was like a yeah or something. I said yeah. I said, yeah. It, was like a, yeah. it was a loud yell. My yell. Um, and um, we were sitting next to the Black Eyed Peas. Yeah. And they all had pure gold suits on. <laughs> Bless the Broken Road had a, had a broken road too. Yeah, it just went on and you know on. The Rascal Flats didn't want to cut it. Yeah, I've heard all kinds of stories. I mean, I've heard so many stories, um, and it you know goes all the way back to like '92. You you you. you Melody know, Crittenden uh, had it. Well, she had it after me. So the first recording is actually you know, it was written with Jeff Hanna. You know, first of all, there was a guy, another guy's on the song. It was a guy who told me a story in a bar. You know, which right. Bobby Bobby Boyd, and he had this this um, thing about his marriage and the divorce and and the great possibilities of, of good things happen. Anyway, so that's its own little story. But I, I was saving up an idea for Jeff Hanna because I wanted to write, I wanted to get on the Dirt Band's record. Mm-hmm. And I had just sung at his wedding with another wonderful songwriter, Matresa Burke. We're Jeff Hanna friends. is a member of the Dirt Band. Jeff Hanna is a member of the Dirt Band, one of my favorite bands ever. 
And so I brought the beginning, just a, a little piece of this uh, on piano to Jeff. And we finished it, and then that I thought that was the end of it because they did cut it, although they didn't do it on piano, and Jeff didn't sing it, and Jimmy, and, and I mean, it was all great. It's just I got we got the cut, and they thought, well, that's it. But um, I continued to play it, and then um, when I got a deal, I did the piano version, the way it was written, um, cut it live in the studio. It was really fun to do it that way. And then after that, uh, they never let that song be singled, but Melody Crittenden came and with, she was on Asylum, and she took it just high enough, like in the 40s? 46. I okay, think. 46. So we thought, Jeff and I thought that was kind of I it. Well, yeah, we, yeah. We, it has we, a history. Yeah, wow. it has a history. And and then there was the sense, like, there's the old adage in Nashville, if somebody singles a song, if it doesn't go too high, you can give it five to seven years, and then maybe you can try it again. There's a, it's just one of those things. that it doesn't you, happen often. It doesn't happen often, but that is what people sometimes say. So it wasn't completely out of the possibility. I was writing at that time with the uh, with Rascal Flatts. Had a, a number of songs on their first couple of records. And wrote with Jay a fair amount, and... and um, Anyway, and they used to say sometimes... Jay DeMarcus. Who's to, Jay DeMarcus, yeah. And he's he, a member of Rascal Flatts. Rascal Flatts. And he would say, man, we love that song. We love that song. He's actually the one I trust the most musically in that group, frankly. I mean, he's the one who can produce and who is actually... I can't speak to that because I'm still hoping to get songs cut by them. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Jay is... Li- listen, they're all really good musicians. And Jay's, you know, he's he's wicked good and he's a good producer. He cut a song of ours on Chicago, of all things. You know, I mean, the That's guy right. can, he did produce that He's record. a very good piano player, I mean, mm-hmm. as well as all the... Everything thing a good drummer anyway they we went out of the country we were in overseas in Botswana uh, and I remember getting back and it was their third album had come out and uh, feels like today you know and that first single had come out which didn't do as well as they want and they were thinking about dropping the entire album like just for you know done and then move on and start what ended up being their next career was kind of with a different producer they were going to trash the whole thing and then they decided they would cut one more song and that was it. And they went in and they cut it and they cut the fire out of it. And and I mean, from the I have to say, you know, you have the songs that get get cut if you're lucky enough through the years. I, I genuinely, when I first heard that recording, I loved that recording. It was sparse. You know, you could hear the piano. You could hear one guitar, one acoustic. The way they were vocal. And Gary's Gary. I mean, you know, like Gary's one of the greatest singers Sings in like popular music. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> I set out on a narrow way was many years ago Hoping I would find true love along that broken road But I got lost a time or two I wiped my brow, I kept pushing through I couldn't see how every sign pointed straight to you to where you are and others who broke my heart they were like northern stars pointing me on my way into your loving arms and this much I know is true that God bless the broken road let me stray to you I think of all them years I spent 
just passing through I'd like to take that time I lost and give it back to you But you just smile and you take my hand Cause you've been there and you understand That it's all part of a grander plan That is coming true Never been a long lost dream Led me to where you are And others who broke my heart They were like northern stars Pointing me on my way Into your loving arms And this much I know is true that God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. You know, you guys ought to think about doing this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to sing with him. I, I don't get to sing with him as much anymore. Marcus Hummond and Levi Hellman, everybody, thank you guys so much. Of course. So much uh, fun. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Before we let you go, we've got another song and a story. It's a bonus track we like to call the B-side, Stories from the Road. First, here's Levi with a little bit of his latest single, Don't Waste the Night, and two very different road stories from father and son, who may be a generation apart, but together in music every step of the way. I remember writing the song, I had, this, I had just learned the cover of uh, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, and it went something like... And I really wanted something like that, like in my set, something that was kind of fun and moving and also had that st pizzicato kind of guitar playing. And so I got in a room with my buddies, um, Josh Thompson, who's an artist in town, and Matt Dragstream, and we wrote this one. It's called Don't Waste a Night. Girl, I had a call I can't keep staring at that clock on that wall It's easy to say cause you know I want it out Yeah, I want it out, oh yeah Don't take your time cause that morning's gonna shine And I need those eyes staring into mine Just cause you're tangled up in the sheets It don't mean we ain't gotta go to sleep To sleep No need for dreaming Make our dreams come true Oh, let's get lost in a moment I wanna get lost with you Show you what's on my mind Don't close your eyes And don't waste the night Come on, come over Don't waste the night Stay up, stay over Take that as yes Don't waste the night. Don't waste the night, baby. Waste it. <laughs> Sound good. Thank you. A quick road story. Wildest thing on the wildest thing ever on the road for you. Uh. <laughs> I'll, I'll or, close my ears or, right now. Or weirdest or stupidest. <laughs> mm. I don't know. I, I I have so many. Gosh, I have so many memories. I for some reason my mind is going to uh, um, my only really great great great. I've had a couple of fun tours, but the the one really great tour. Early on in my career, when I was on Columbia, I got to open for Alison Krauss and Union Station in Europe. 
And so we were playing like, you know, Gaiety Theater, Ulster Hall. Uh, we were, we played, uh, which, which one's on the Thames? The uh, Royal Festival Hall, you know. And I had one guy I could bring with me, and I brought Daryl Scott because we were just becoming buddies, and he was living out in Mount Juliet, and he was, you know, great. And uh, and we didn't have we didn't have a they didn't have room in the bus. They had the full, you know, everybody, Jerry, everybody, you know. And so here we were. I'd get forty five minutes, and then we would listen to one of the greatest roots groups on the planet. Yep. And, and really an American ambassador of all that is good in music. I mean, literally, it was like that. And we would sit. We'd do my set, and we would sit, and we would just, you know, just just drink it in, drink it in. And the, and the other thing that I remember is that the last show was London. It was the Festival Hall. And uh, my wife, his mom, uh, she flew over. You know, it was such a big deal. Becca came over, and and my publisher at that time, Danny Strick, actually filled the room my dressing room with flowers <laughs> i'll never forget it wow you must have felt really good i did and he wrote in a card they were all from becca he loved becca everyone loves becca they should they should they should all love becca but they all do and he sent flowers a room full of them for her isn't that great story. that's very sweet yeah. part of it for me right now is like as at the artist point i'm at it's like sometimes you play a show and it's like the fillmore for kit moore and it's sold out and amazing and then other moments, you're in an empty pizza bar kind of playing music. <laughs> and uh, you kind of get like the juxtaposition. Everything kind of happens. Uh, but a wild tour story for me was uh, we were in the middle of Baton Rouge. And it was some empty kind of Wild Wings bar. And uh, we get there, and they have like glass all over the floor. And it's basically a biker gang. And I step on stage, and this guy's like, Get off stage, Justin Bieber. <laughs> so I was like, oh, God. Anyways, by the end of the night, I actually had the entire Liger gang dancing, so it was kind of fun. I started playing Johnny Cash, and I was like, oh, I'm over it. It all worked. <laughs> Thank you, guys. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Next week, a powerful episode with the singer-songwriter Jimmy Wayne. He'll talk about his incredible childhood, one that left him homeless at one point. We'll find out who saved him, how he found music, and what he's doing now to save other homeless teens. It's an emotional can't-miss episode on the next Children of Song, the podcast that combines live music with great storytelling. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.